Good afternoon. Welcome to Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key and I'm going to read prose to you for half an hour. Previously on Hooting Yard, as they say, um, at the end of last week's show, um, I was halfway through a piece and due to my consummate professionalism in broadcasting, of course I completely mistimed everything, didn't have time to... um, read it before the next show began and the person doing the next show was actually sat here in the studio next to me rustling his papers um so i had to curtail that piece in the middle so i thought i'd just read it again really from from the top as they say this is called grots the poet john keats had his elfin grot The poet Owen Barfield had a folgered grot. There are a number of other grots deserving of attention, poetic and otherwise. Gervais' beer pint's fuming, hapless grot springs to mind, at least to my mind, as an example of a so-called poetic grot that we really could have done without. It's the setting for one of his earliest poems, included in Crouton as Exemplar, the collection of beer pint teenage drivel, which is mercifully out of print. A more appealing poetic grot is Scrimjaw's ten-inch-tall toy plastic grot, the abiding image from his astonishing narrative tour de force, How I Lost My Bus Pass and Found It Again Last Tuesday, Not Without Certain Hazards. For me, this is one of the greatest poems of the late 20th century, and its annual recitation at the Hooting Yard Festival of texts related to bus travel never fails to warm the cockles of my heart. As for non-poetic grots, who can fail to be excited by Dobson's grot? Dobson went on one of his walks, taking with him a copy of Cliff Castles and Cave Dwellings of Europe by Sabine Bearing Gold, which was at the time his favourite reading. Upon his return, his brain was awash with it. I must leave this building and find a grot in which to live out the rest of my days, he shouted, and began poring over geological maps of the coast. All attempts to divert him from this mania were fruitless. He thought he'd identified a suitable grot, one which was flooded by the violent incoming tide for only a few hours each day, and began moving his belongings thither, employing a local peasant who had a pony and trap. Only after four trips did this man demand payment from the impoverished pamphleteer, who thrust a spare bottle of vinaigrette dressing into his paws and begged him to continue. The peasant was understandably enraged and threw the bottle back at Dobson. Dobson's next ploy was to try to convince the railway authorities to build a new terminus within yards of his grot, They laughed in his face. He made one attempt to make the journey by bicycle with a few kitchen utensils stuffed into his panniers, but his knees gave out before he was halfway there and he abandoned the idea as hopeless. What to do? Everything beginning with the letters A to J that Dobson owned was stacked in cardboard cartons in the faraway grot, subject to the relentless destructive power of the crashing waves, which, twice a day, engulfed what he still thought of as his future home, for the peasant had ignored the instructions to suspend the cartons by chains from several handy stalactites.
Dobson calculated how much cash he would need to take cab rides from his building to his grot and was appalled. Indefatigable as ever, he decided to publish a new series of tracts on popular subjects, deluding himself that he would make enough sales to cover the cost of regular taxi fares. Marigold Chew's printing press churned out copies of Some Hurried Notes on Tab Hunter and Eight Things You Never Knew About Tuesday Weld, those anomalies in the Dobson oeuvre, but to no avail. Not a single copy was ever sold. The dream came to an end on a particularly wet Tuesday in March. Tucking another bottle of vinaigrette dressing into his pocket, Dobson went to parley with the peasant. He bashed on the door of a tumble-down hut next to a ditch by the canal, forcing his mouth into a queasy smile. There was no answer, nor would there ever be an answer. For unbeknown to Dobson, the peasant had fallen victim to ergot poisoning, gone crackers and run amok in the purple hills. The pamphleteer trudged home, sat with his head in his hands, drank 14 mugs of tea, abandoned all thought of living in his grot, and set to work on his matchless essay, Why I Do Not Live in a Grot, Elfin or Otherwise. It was to prove a turning point in his career. Regular listeners will know that we normally eschew poetry on this um, on this program. Um, poetry is not really our thing; much more prose. However, I mentioned in that last piece, Grotz, the poet um, Dennis Beerpint. Um, there's a book of Dennis Beerpint's verse called "The Vitamin B Pirate Gang and Other Maritime Doggerel," and um, this is one of the pieces from it. Chaps oozing charm wedged in a chest. There's no knowing who'll come best. I'm going to start that again because I completely missed a word out. Ready? Let's go. Chaps oozing charm wedged in a chest. There's no knowing who'll come out best. One is called Billy, head made of cork, shoulders cast iron, arms and legs chalk. Mythology enwraps him like a shroud. His voice is grating and horribly loud. And then there is Cedric, aquatic with fins. He likes to muck about with a box of pins. He has no ears, but his feet are huge. His entire head is covered in rouge. Hummingbirds pain him, as do owls. He's always had trouble pronouncing his vowels. The third of our trio is Swivel-Eyed Dan. His head is the shape of a frying pan. He once went south looking for bees, but all his dreams blew away on a breeze. You have to give credit where it's due, but not to Dan when he's dribbling goo. Three of them, then, wedged in a chest, each one wearing a red satin vest, oozing insouciance, polish and charm. Let's hope they do not come to harm. But the chest has been stowed in the hold of a ship whose captain is moody and curls his lip. 
As they sail out from port, the captain growls, Damn the beakers! Damn the owls! Damn the crackers! Damn the flaps! Damn the chest of charming chaps! Two hours later, the ship just sank, and all that remained was a single plank. It floated for weeks and then was washed ashore. I found it on the beach and used it for a door. So when you come to my stinking hut, bringing some food for my stinking mutt, go careful by the door and remember your prayers. Get wedged in a chest, he who dares. So anyway, that was Dennis Beerpint's drivel. Back to um, more enlightening prose now. Intensive and scrupulous new biographical research on old Halob, the crusty and cantankerous sporting legend who was for many years the coach and mentor of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol, has revealed an amazing fact. According to a recently published monograph by Pierre Sugum, Old Halob worked with fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol for 40 years without ever suspecting that his protégé was not actually real. The wizened and untidy trainer, with his moth-eaten clothing and offensive hair oil, seems to have overlooked the weekly comic magazine Fictional Athlete Bobnit Tivol's Weekly Comic Magazine for Girls and Boys, wherein the sprinter and sometime pole vaulter's breathtaking athletic feats were chronicled by a series of pseudonymous writers and illustrators. Professor Sugum has also unearthed compelling evidence that one of these pseudonymous writers may have been Dobson. If this is so, it would have been one of the few paying jobs the out-of-print pamphleteer ever held, along with his hectic janitorial escapades in that tinned milk of magnesia factory in Winnipeg. Sugum is reluctant to say for certain that Dobson wrote the early stories Fictional Athlete Bobnit Tivol and the Pole Vaulting Pole That Snapped in Two, and Fictional Athlete Bobnit Tivol Buffs His Latest Medal with a Frayed Rag, leaving it to readers to judge the merits of the case. It is old Halob's ignorance of the athlete's fictional status which is the most astounding revelation of the article. One has always been tempted to conclude that the wily coach knew more than he let on, and yet this view is comprehensively demolished by Sugum in a couple of sentences. I wish I could read out to you extracts from this groundbreaking essay here, but I have been informed that Professor Sugum is highly litigious, a monster of depravity, and wallows in a foul pit of moral turpitude, so it would be foolhardy to antagonise him. Next up, this is an old um, an old piece, but I just felt that I wanted to read it again, really, so I'm going to. 
It goes like this. You may know the opening lines. Dark star crashes, pouring its light into ashes. Reason tatters. These are weighty matters. So weighty, indeed, that you must note them in your jotter. But horror of horrors, with what will you jot? You recall with a pang that your biro is lost, or perhaps has been purloined by the biro thief, he whose exploits have so enthralled the readers of the daily clang. Your draw, of course, is innocent of pencils. It has been so since childhood. Your papa would have no pencils in his house, you recall, and yet he never revealed the wellspring of his loathing. Once you tried to write about it with your biro, and your book, His Loathing, Its Wellspring, was, well, well received up to a point, though there were those who said it lacked a certain dash. To your shame, you blamed your papa's chlamydia, a conclusion so preposterous that your uncle sued you in a court of law. Behind the door of the court of law lurked a lactose-intolerant nitroglycerin boffin, a blue stocking who became your wife and changed your life. You pulped all copies of your book and sat in steam. You had a hideous headache for a week. But planning as you did to raise no storms, you kept all pencils from your house, just as your father did. Your wife asked why. You used a nib to jot down your reply. I am my father's son, you wrote. He died a pauper. He was that kind of guy. that last piece rhymed too didn't it we have to put a stop to this we'll put a stop to this with um medical notes on a mezzotintist my lung has just collapsed is not a statement you're likely to hear spoken for the simple reason that when someone's lung has collapsed they will not be able to do much more than gasp for breath think of the lung like an airbag which when punctured shrivels up with a wheezy noise sort of this is pretty much common sense and does not require extensive medical knowledge. Now, imagine for a moment that you do have extensive medical knowledge, that you are, for present purposes, a senior medico in, a, in an important hospital. You are sitting at your big desk in your big office, leafing through a sheaf of complicated diagrams which would not mean nothing to a lay person. Years of training and an acute and piercing mind allow you to interpret the mass of medical information contained in these colourful charts and to reach swift, startling and expert conclusions. You are about to press a blue knob on the desk console which pipes your instructions to less expert doctors elsewhere in the hospital when you are interrupted. A man enters your office unannounced. He is blubbery and shaggy-haired, and his clothing is creased and crumpled, and he has a woebegone yet desperate air, and his face is the colour of tallow, and he smells of disinfectant, 
and he says, Doctor, doctor, my lung has just collapsed. You look up at him into his watery eyes and you press the green knob on your console instead of the blue one and as soon as you hear the gentle hum that indicates you're connected to the system, you say, please come and get my brother and take him home. There is no exasperation in your voice, just inhuman patience and a trace perhaps of a love that is fathomless and bold. For you are Dr Tint and your visitor is Rex Tint. He is known to the world as a supremely talented mesotintist. To you, he is a hypochondriac, constantly assailed by phantom maladies and imagined injuries. He is taken home by paramedics and tucked into bed on the mezzanine floor of his mesotint-strewn flat, where he falls asleep. When he awakes, there is a chance that he may yet set to work on his latest mesotint. Equally, he may be convinced that he is subject to black bile and the flux and hair at high speed back to the hospital or to a clinic or to a soothsayer. Rex Tint has much in common with the current poet laureate Andrew Motion, who likes to drink Lemsip while he works because it makes him imagine that he is slightly ill. I read in a biography of A.E. Houseman that he wrote most of A Shropshire Lad while he had a cold, Motion told the BBC. And I thought, yes, I know about that, that sort of slightly introverted, self-pitying mood that a mild illness can give. It's absolutely conducive to poems. <clears throat> Rex Tint, however, felt that when mesotinting, he needed something more than a mild illness. He needed, he needed to be in trauma, close to death, face to face with extinction. Whether this genuinely improved the quality of his work is hard to say, for so matchless a mesotintist was he that an open-mouthed gasp of awe was and remains the only fitting reaction. Somewhere between Andrew Motion's self-pitying mood and the mesotintist Rex Tint's counterfeit death agony comes Dobson's approach to creativity. He had read about the Vatican's practice of ensuring that the Pope is dead by hitting him on the head three times with a special ceremonial hammer while shouting his name in his ear. If the pontiff fails to respond, he is pronounced dead and cardinals are summoned from around the world to choose a successor. Dobson was fascinated by this, and whenever he felt a pamphlet coming on, he asked Marigold Chu to beat him thrice on the head with a hammer and shout, Dobson! 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 Nursing a throbbing skull, he would sit down at his escritoire and set to work. I haven't yet decided which of these three methods would suit me best, so I've decided to nurture a slight head cold, feign a collapsed lung, and get bashed on the head with a hammer all at the same time, with a dose of bird flu thrown in for good measure. As the listener, you will be able to judge the success or otherwise of my courageous plan.
first instance. You are walking along a country lane as dusk descends. The path is muddy, but you're wearing a pair of stout Canadian forestry service boots. Crows call from the trees, and from the direction of the lake you hear the demented cry of loons. Jauntily, you swing your stick through the air and whistle a half-remembered tune from the golden age of the Hoochie Coochie dance band era. All of a sudden, your path is blocked by a diminutive figure. He is wearing a thrum nightcap and an ill-fitting suit of clothes. He has a goatee beard, a pasty complexion, and while one of his eyes is mischievously a twinkle, the other seems dead as if it were made of glass. He is carrying a little drum, and as he stands in front of you, he begins to pound it with his strangely muscular fist, arrhythmically, even peskily. You step to one side to stride past him, but he dodges in front of you. You step to the other side, but he springs sideways to forestall you, all the while banging his drum. Your temper rises. Brandishing your stick, you are about to belabour him about the head, but he anticipates your move, emits a sinister gurgling noise, and flits off into the trees as suddenly as he appeared. You walk on, no longer jaunty, but fractious and grim. Second instance. The arena is packed and you stand at your lectern looking out at the thousands of devotees who have gathered to hear your lecture. You enjoy nothing more than demolishing David Icke's theory of intergalactic lizard people and the talk you have prepared for tonight is perhaps your most cogent one to date. You clear your throat and the huge crowd rustles into silence. All of a sudden, a diminutive figure crashes onto the stage at your side. He is wearing a thrum nightcap and an ill-fitting suit of clothes. He has a goatee beard, a pasty complexion, and while one of his eyes is mischievously a twinkle, the other seems dead, as if it were made of glass. He snatches your lecture notes from the lectern, rips them into a thousand pieces, and casts them onto the floor at your feet. Momentarily discombobulated, you become apoplectic with rage and lurch towards the tiny man intending to wring his neck. But before you can reach him, he flits away and is instantly lost in the crowd. You had felt in such high spirits and now you are fractious and grim. These two instances are fictional, of course, for you, the listener, have never been provoked in such a brazen manner by so diminutive a fellow in a thrum nightcap. My purpose in inventing these scenes was to give you an idea of what it was like to be accosted by Pindar Widgery, the pint-sized provocateur. Countless are those who have been so accosted. Each tells a similar story, that their mood was good, they were jaunty, in high spirits, when this tiny, goateed man in an ill-fitting suit, with that incongruous thrum nightcap atop his tiny head, appeared out of nowhere and provoked them to violence. Violence he escaped by vanishing into a forest or into a crowd, or even, according to some accounts, just going pfft in a puff of inexplicable vapour. Inexplicable indeed is the vapour into which he has now disappeared, 
for the last time. I'm here to tell his obituary. I know that by convention I ought to have begun by saying Pindar Widgery, who has died aged 92 in a bobsleigh accident, was known as the pint-sized provocateur. That would have been the conventional way to begin, but I wanted to break the news gently. And in truth, I wanted to fill my allotted space with something, and good grief, we know so little about Pindar Widgery's life. Ancestry, unknown. Year of birth, unknown. Childhood, a mystery, save for an unreliable anecdote buried in a footnote in a biography of silver screen siren Edna Purvians. Formative influences, unknown. And so it goes on. We do not know when he decided to devote devote his life to pointless provocations, nor why. We can only guess that a smile crossed his lips when he was described in print as the most exasperating man on the planet. We don't even know if that dead eye was made of glass. Perhaps all we can be sure of was that his presence at such an advanced age on a fully crewed bobsleigh careering at terrifying speed in the snow-capped mountains of a cold and distant winter sports resort must have been yet another provocative act. Oh, one other thing we know. Many witnesses have placed him indisputably on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository on Dealey Plaza in Dallas at noon on the 22nd of November 1962. I know this was exactly a year before the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but still... I think I'd like to leave you this week with some quotations from other writers. Well, we've already had Dennis Beerpint, but um, proper writers. So, um, yes, this is from G.L. Apperson's book, The Social History of Smoking. It's a little curious, considering the devotion of latter-day men of letters to tobacco, that in their early days so many of the men who wrote on the subject attacked the social use of tobacco with violence and virulence. Their titles are characteristic of their style. A writer named Deacon published in 1616 a quarto entitled Tobacco Tortured in the Filthy Fumes of Tobacco Refined. But Joshua Sylvester had easily surpassed this when he wrote his Tobacco battered and the pipes shattered about their ears that idly idolise so base and barbarous a weed or at least overlove so loathsome a vanity by a volley of holy shot thundered from Mount Helicon. Published in, nine, in 1615. Controversialists of that period rejoiced in full-worded titles and in full-bloodied praise or abuse. And um, another quotation from 
Elliot O'Donnell, whose book Byways of Ghostland includes this. Were it not for the lower order of spirit brains, there would be comparatively few drunkards, gamblers, adulterers, fornicators, murderers and suicides. It is they who excite man's animal senses by conjuring up alluring pictures of drink and gold and sexual happiness. By the aid of the higher type of spirit brains, I have been enabled to perceive the atmosphere surrounding drinking dens and brothels full of all kinds of bestial influences, from elementals, who allure men by presenting to their minds all kinds of attractive tableau, to the earthbound spirits of drunkards and libertines, transformed into horrors of the subhuman, sub-animal order of phantasms, things with bloated, nude bodies and pigs' faces, shaggy bears with fulsome, watery eyes, mangy dogs, etc. I think that's a very, a very good etc. that. You know, lets himself off there. Anyway, that was Elliot O'Donnell from Byways of Ghostland. This was Frank Key with Hooting Yard on the Air. I'll be back next week. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Bye-bye. <laughs>